take your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 22 with me. Beginning in verse 24 this morning. Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. We'll read God's word together and I'll pray and ask for his blessing on it. Luke 22 and verse 24. A dispute also arose among them. Jonathan, I'm getting a little bit of a a ting there. Thanks, brother. Let's return to the word. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, will you? Lord, we ask this morning that you would now enlighten our eyes. Lord, we we pray that you would illuminate the text of Scripture to us. And in doing so, Lord, we pray that you would not only give understanding of it, but God, but that you would help us to embrace and submit to the truths of your word. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Do you have a favorite show that you like to watch? Yeah, many of us do. I certainly do. One of my most favorite shows to watch is Shark Tank. Many of you have probably heard of it. If you haven't, it's a show where you watch different entrepreneurs and business owners come before a panel of venture capitalists to seek funding for their companies. And I love everything about this show. 
you get to watch these business owners come up with their best pitch and present their strategies for success in business, all in effort to get the big break in funding that they need to really cause their business to flourish. You see all kinds of different stories on the show. But there's one common thread that runs throughout all these stories, and that is that these budding business owners have been grinding away and putting in work, some of them for years on end. Long days, sleepless nights, financial sacrifice are all just a part of that world. And for what? Well, it's because they've believed that if they work hard enough and they sacrifice long enough, then one day it'll pay off. One day they'll reap the reward. They've bought into that Dave Ramsey mantra. Live like no one else today, put in the sacrifice, so that one day you can live like no one else. You can reap the rewards, the fruits of your labor. And there's something about this idea that's compelling to us. That's why the show has been so popular for so long. And in our text today, Jesus presents a similar idea. The difference is just in the timeline of the payoff. Shark Tank and Dave Ramsey would have you believe that in business and finance, if you work hard enough and sacrifice long enough, then, then you'll experience great reward in this life. But Jesus, speaking of investment in the kingdom, says that, if you spend all of your life working and sacrifice, sacrificing, then you'll experience greatness in the life to come. This is the idea of the passage. True greatness. You might say it's, it's greatness in the kingdom. And he unpacks this concept in three movements of the text. Those three movements will serve as the points of the sermon this morning. And they are as follows. First, we find the definition of greatness. Second, we find the dependence which greatness requires. And last, we see the dangerous demand of greatness. The definition of greatness, the dependence which greatness requires, and the dangerous demands of greatness. Let's dive into the text and consider this first point of the, the true definition of greatness. Our text opens up at the moment just after the institution of the Lord's Supper and the revelation that there was a betrayer in their midst. Luke tells us that a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, right off, there's something interesting about this. If you'll remember, after the announcement that there was a betrayer in the midst of the twelve, there was a humble response on each of their part. A little less clear as it's rendered in Luke, but very clear in Matthew and Mark. The, the disciples had begun to ask, is it I, Lord? And an exemplary response of humility, no doubt. But here, we find that they all turned in an instant from a heart of humility regarding the betrayal to a proud and self-serving Heart regarding their position in the kingdom. It's a, it's a stunning shift, really, how quickly it happens. We aren't made aware of what prompted this shift in their conversation, but 
there is this stark shift. Nonetheless, the, the importance that we're to glean primarily from the disciples' preoccupation is that that which Jesus addresses. Jesus begins rebuking them over what is apparently nothing more than a desire for power and prestige. That's how he interprets their desire, a, a hunger for power and prestige. In verse 25, Jesus addresses their desire, saying, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So Jesus points out the way that the world seeks after greatness. That's what he intends by referring to these Gentile kings. And, and what is the motivation for greatness among the ungodly? He mentions two things, power and prestige. Having high positions, the kings of the Gentiles seek to use power to bring others in subjection to themselves. The, the sense here is that they desire to control people. In other words, the world seeks authority in high positions in order to be served rather than to render service to others. But not only do they desire power, they, they also seek prestige. Jesus says those in authority over them are called benefactors. And they're called such because that's how they want to be known. Down through history, many have taken the title of benefactor to themselves. Because they don't just desire to do good for others, they want to be recognized for their good deeds. And nothing has really changed, has it, down through the centuries. Beyond kings and political leaders, people of power in the modern day seek the same types of things. In general, man is prone to seek power from these same sinful motivations. Not to be clear, power itself is not inherently sinful. Again, it's these motivations to be served and recognized that make the hunger for authority so sinister. And this is hardly limited to world leaders. Just consider the way that our culture frames the, the goal of work and service in the world. Do you often hear people saying, well, I, I need to work and, and pour myself out because God has said it's good for mankind to work and to, to cultivate the earth. Yes, God, in his meticulous providence, actively works in our world to bring about the purpose for which he's designed it. So being made in his image, I too should work. He has said that it's good. Does that sound like things you normally hear in your workplace? No. What do we hear? Well, I've got to put in my time so that... One day, I don't have to listen to these buffoons they call bosses anymore. What, what do we hear? I, I've got to work so that one day, maybe I can pay somebody to do all the things I don't want to do. It's that Dave Ramsey mentality, right? Live like no one else. Put in the work so that one day, you can live like no one else. Or Consider the, the hospital wings that don the names of donors that contributed to bring them about. Is it a bad thing to use money like that to, to benefit others? Well, no. And not all do it for the reason of making their names known. But oh, how many 
fundraisers have motivated givers by the fact that their names would be forever stamped on these buildings in bold letters for everyone to know that they made this happen. Unfortunately, I've, I've seen the very same thing in churches. Raising money for, for pews or classrooms. They say, well, we'll put a nice placard there with your name on it so that everyone will know that you made this happen. But Jesus says that's how the world is motivated. He goes on to set forth a, a contrasting definition of greatness in the kingdom of God. He says in verse 26, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. The kingdom of the world is in direct contrast to the kingdom of God. And if we are to follow Him, then we have to embrace a mindset that is in direct contrast to that of the world. You know that in the first century, children were not held in high esteem. They were taken to be the opposite of important. As those who didn't contribute to society and frankly were understood just to get in the way, they were not lifted up as, as highly valued. But Jesus says that the existence and experience of a child is a fitting parallel to what greatness in the kingdom is like. And he adds to this picture by saying that in God's sight, what it means to be thought much of is to be a servant. That is, to be one who lives in subjection and submission to others not elevated above others, being served. So the combination of, of becoming as the youngest and as one who serves produces for us a reality that service is the pathway to true greatness in the kingdom of God. And this description also speaks of a certain kind of service. It's a, it's a humble, quiet service. A service that goes without recognition. A service that may even be seen as unimportant. Now the truth is that, that for Christians in our culture, we've likely heard this quite a lot. The, the verse from Matthew chapter 20 gets thrown around even by secular folks in our culture. The last will be first and the first will be last, right? We're so familiar with the Bible's definition of true greatness that we're prone to just glaze over a passage like this and assume that we already know the lesson that Jesus is teaching here. But we need to really stop and marinate for just a moment in what Jesus is trying to get across. Because if you look at the text, Jesus belabors the fact that what he is teaching the disciples in this moment is diametrically opposed to the way that the world thinks. Which means, friends, that it's diametrically opposed to the way, that, way of thinking that we can so easily drift into. And because he knows our tendency to do this, Jesus doubles down on the distinction between the worldly mind and the godly mind. And we find that he presents a call to us that should reorient our hearts. A call that really works to reorient our lives. 
So how does he double down on the distinction between the world's view of greatness and his own? Well, he, he does so in the most remarkable way. We see Jesus illustrating this point by applying the principle to himself. Jesus has already made clear that it's the world that's motivated by power and prestige, not his followers. And he's defined what true greatness looks like. Humble, quiet service. But look how he continues in verse 27 to drive home his point. He asks a question. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? And he gives what would be the practical, natural perspective. Is it not the one who reclines at table? Of course it is. But from a purely practical perspective, who wants to be waiting on others instead of being waited on? We testify to this reality every time we go to a restaurant. Oh, I, I don't feel like cooking tonight. Let's let someone else do it. But Jesus makes the contrast between the worldly and godly understanding of greatness by drawing attention to this natural view of greatness and then saying, but I am among you as the one who serves. And this takes the lesson to another level, friends. It's one thing to say that if you want to be great in the kingdom, just like an organization, you have to take your lumps and work your way up through the ranks. But here we find that this principle is so fixed in God's economy that it applies to the one at the top. Jesus, the Lord of glory, he who is the image of the invisible God, he who is the first and best of all beings, the catechism tells us, even he commits himself to a servile state because that is the pathway to exaltation in the kingdom of God. And friends, if Jesus was not the exception to the rule in relationship of humiliation and exaltation, we are not either. Yet even with, with this principle fixed in our minds, that, that the greatness in the kingdom of God comes through service, we're still left asking some questions, right? Okay, you might say, I, I get that service is what equals achievement in the kingdom, but, but who do I serve? How do I serve? And, and where do I serve? Well, all these are good questions because without them, we'd be left with just a nebulous idea about success in the kingdom with no real way to apply it. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us in such a state. Jesus continues speaking to his disciples in verses 28 through 30. Look there with me. He says, you are those who stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table and excuse me, eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is where we get into the nitty gritty, because these verses reveal what kind of service Jesus is referring to and what motivates believers to render it. Jesus says here that the disciples had already been given to service that would result in their exaltation. So how does Jesus describe the service of the disciple? Well, verse 28 tells us, look, he says there, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. 
And it's as a result of this that they are promised blessing in the kingdom to come. The disciples were not always on track. They made plenty of blunders. In fact, they made so much. The Bible is so uh, filled with these types of blunders that it really begins to give us hope that there's uh, you know, hope for ourselves. And it, it, it gives us a, a sense of, uh, of uh, trust in, in the validity of the Bible. Like, oh, these are real stories of real people. But here, in, in the moment directly following the, the immature squabble among them, he commends them for their faithfulness to stay with him in his trials. Jesus has been despised and rejected by men. He he endured false accusations and was belittled by the very people that he brought into existence. The disciples not only kept believing, but they kept in the work of ministry with him. Many, including Judas, they had come and professed faith, maybe even followed for a time, but in time they proved not to be committed disciples. Not so for these men. They defended him, they proclaimed him, and they served him practically in whatever he asked. So, we deduce from Jesus' instruction to the disciples, what sort of service it is that Jesus demands from us. Though Jesus is not with us in the physical manner that he was with the twelve, our service should be consistent with theirs. True disciples are those who give themselves in the service to defending Christ, proclaiming Christ, and whatever practical service is necessary for the continued ministry of the Lord Jesus today. Brothers and sisters, that means many things for your engagement with the world on an individual level. But it certainly carries many applications that relate to your service in the church, which is his bride in the world today. It is, the Bible tells us, the church, the body of Christ in the world today. Inasmuch as you faithfully and humbly and quietly commit to serve the church, you serve Christ himself, friend. If if that's setting up and tearing down chairs, if that's serving in child care or opening up your schedule to engage in discipleship, friends, you are serving Christ and pursuing the great rewards of the kingdom to come. And what, what greatness is there in store in the kingdom to come. Well, look again at verse 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's worthy of note that the term assign used here is covenantal language. So Jesus has just taught them through the institution of the Lord's Supper that As they partake of his body and blood by faith, they are united with him in covenant for eternal life. And now he says that just as secure as your eternal life is with me, so your eternal reward is also. You see, they're they're bound up together. The covenant which brings eternal life 
by faith in Christ brings with it great rewards in heaven. But you see, that also means that faith in Christ is bound up with service to Christ. There's no distinction, we find, in the degrees of greatness in the kingdom. But there is, given to all who remain faithful in service to Christ, great reward in the kingdom to come. The reward of communing with Christ at the heavenly table. And the reward of sharing in His reign over creation. We shouldn't go too far in our speculation about what that role of authority is that we'll possess in glory. The Bible doesn't make it all too plain to us. Yet, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is very clear that all the saints will have a role in the judgment of both the world and the angelic host. But that's far more greatness than I can really wrap my head around. Now, the, the first point really is the meat and potatoes of this passage. So, so we've spent a lot of time unpacking it. But quickly, we need to consider the points that follow in our text. So let's turn now to the second point, and that is the dependence that greatness requires. Upon explaining the nature of heavenly rewards to the disciples, Jesus turns specifically to Peter to deliver a, a somber realization. In verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, you'll notice that Jesus addresses the boisterous disciple, not by the name which he had assigned to him, given the spiritual insight that Peter displayed early on. Rather, Jesus addresses him by the name that he was known, by, uh, known as prior to his confession of Christ as Lord. And that's not insignificant. In fact, the repetition of it here underscores that Jesus is making a point in using his name this way. What Jesus is signaling is that what the disciple is about to endure, he will endure as a result of his fleshly tendencies. Peter won't be the only one to endure this. The term you in this verse is in the plural, meaning that the schemes of Satan will be applied to all the disciples over the next several hours. But Jesus has a message specifically for Peter about the reality of engaging in the spiritual battle which is to unfold. Our Lord says that Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. If you're not familiar with it, the, the process of sorting out grain in the first century involved tossing the grain in a sieve. In so doing, the, the useful portion of the wheat would be separated from the chaff. And so the message to Peter is clear. As he did so with Job, Satan has requested that he could put the disciples to the test. Tossing them about, as it were, to prove their faith to be superficial and false. And his request was obviously granted. Yet amid all the distress the Lord Jesus was about to experience, he reveals that he has not left his beloved to endure this on, in his own strength, without divine aid. 
Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And here the, the you is singular. So Jesus makes known that his intercession is not general, but specific. It's personal. As the merciful high priest that he is, Jesus has interceded on Peter's behalf that he would find spiritual strength to endure this trial. And though this, this brother did go on to deny the Lord Jesus, we find that his faith was not ultimately snuffed out. Nonetheless, Peter's response to Jesus here is telling us to why Jesus addressed him by his earthly name. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He totally disregards, you see, the gravity of the spiritual battle that Jesus tells him he's about to enter into. And in so doing, he disregards the means by which Jesus would have him to endure it. Peter doesn't acknowledge his, his weakness and beg all the more that Jesus continue in intercession for him. What does he do? He turns inward. Peter begins assessing his ability to weather the spiritual storm by his own faculties and by his inner strength that he possesses or that he perceives himself to possess. He makes the arrogant claim that, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. But Jesus makes clear that what Peter is trusting in would not be enough. So Jesus prophesies to him, saying, I tell you, Peter, that the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. The lesson is clear for us. In our striving to serve the Lord, we cannot do so in our own strength, friends. As we seek to serve Jesus by defending him when people slander him, by proclaiming his gospel to the lost, and by enduring trials for the sake of his name, we must never do so in the strength of our flesh. We cannot look inward, focusing on our faculties and inner fortitude, to engage in the spiritual life at any level in that way is a fool's errand. We must look outward to Christ in full dependence on Him and His mediatory work, His atoning blood pleading our righteousness before the Father. But beyond that, we need His active intercessory work done for us so that we may be strengthened to stand fast in the day of temptation and trial. If we're to serve Christ's kingdom, then we must be dependent on Him to sustain our hearts and souls moment by moment. Interestingly enough, though, Jesus does not instruct the disciples to forsake all means outside of Himself in order to navigate through the world that is wrecked by sin. And this Jesus makes clear as He transitions to speak to the disciples about the dangerous demands of greatness. That's our last point in the text, the dangerous demands of greatness. It becomes clear in the verses that follow that the service which greatness in the kingdom requires is a dangerous and demanding endeavor. 
As such, the disciples would need all their resources at their disposal if they were to survive in the days that lie ahead of them. To be sure, in spiritual life and battle, there is no aid for the soul except Christ. But what Jesus was speaking to in this last portion of the text was the physical and material realm. In verse 35, Jesus asked the disciples, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. So you can hear the difference in the subject matter being discussed. Whereas he talked with Peter about this spiritual struggle, he was speaking now of the material realm. He turns his existence to the material realm. You can hear it with the language of the money bag and knapsack and sandals. And what we hear is that as long as Jesus has been with them, the situation was such that they were never lacking what they needed physically. When, when you're walking hand in hand with the one who feeds huge crowds with a few loaves and a few fish, it turns out that you're not really worried about where your next meal's coming from. However, this wasn't going to be the case for long. Look at verse 36. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. The, the but now there is emphatic in its contrast of times gone by. The experience of being on mission in the world without the presence and direct provision of the Lord Jesus would prove to be nothing short of dangerous and demanding. So after having built up the discipline of total dependence on him while he was among them, Jesus now instructs them to take up what they had in order to fulfill their service to him. The lesson is one of stewardship, you see. They had to learn while Jesus was still with them that he would provide for all their needs. They, they needed to come to the place where they would freely give up all in following him, knowing that he would meet every need along the way. But with that lesson learned, with their hearts now purified from the idolatry of material things, ha having been wiped clean of the notion that we actually own things instead of just managing them for God, now they could take up whatever resources were at their disposal. Because the fact is that it's, it's God who provides all anyway. And for the disciples who are living for greatness in the kingdom, the world is an extremely difficult place. Do you remember what Jesus said when he sent out the 72 disciples with no knapsack or money bag in Luke chapter 10. He said, Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So you see, Jesus is changing the rules of engagement, but the conditions remain the same. The disciples were still going out as lambs amidst wolves. We, church, exist in this world as lambs in the midst of wolves. So much does Jesus desire to make known the difficulty of faithful life in a fallen world that he goes beyond money bag and knapsacks to say, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. 
For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Now you might be taken aback to hear that Jesus would tell his followers to take up arms in advancement of the kingdom and engagement with the world. But that's the point. It's meant to strike you as curious because it's hyperbolic. We know it's hyperbolic because when the disciples take him literally and they say, Look, Lord, here are two swords. How does Jesus respond in verse 38? It is enough. And just to be clear, the sense of the language that Jesus uses there is the same sense that a mom or dad uses when they say to the kids, that's enough. Jesus is saying, I I was just trying to make a point, guys. But his point still stands. We are to walk in this world with, with eyes wide open to the danger and difficulty that we meet in our efforts to pursue gospel faithfulness. What he says here is reminiscent of his instruction to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Church, as faithful disciples, we must garner all the resources available to us in effort to advance the kingdom. Because from an earthly perspective, the winds are not in our favor. The systems are rigged against us. And we have a real enemy that seeks every opportunity to sabotage success in the kingdom. The world's a precarious place for Christians. It's a precarious place for churches. And to bring this home in closing, I'd like to say it's no secret that our humble church faces many difficult demands in seeking to advance the glory of God through a faithful gospel ministry. But I want you to know that I am genuinely grateful for each one of you that decides to leverage your time, your talent, your treasures to accomplish the glory of God through an approach that we deem to be biblical. Because in a church like ours, Every minute spent in the sound booth matters. Every moment spent in prayer matters. Every note played matters. Every meal shared matters. And I want you to know that I am grateful that you choose to invest in this body To see the kingdom advance through biblical means and methods. And friends, in this time of transition, it's my prayer that you would choose to continue doing just that. Even doubling down on that commitment here at Midtown Baptist Church. For the glory of God and in pursuit of greatness in the kingdom together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would take these truths and that you would shape us, Lord, more into the image of your son Jesus. Help us, Father, to pursue the humility of Christ and embrace the the mindset of service fixated on the greatness of the kingdom and not greatness in this world. 
do the work in our souls necessary to produce that kind of thought processes, that kind of life commitments. We ask now in Christ's name. Amen.